How would you describe your earthly father? If someone asked you what kind of man he was, what would you say? Perhaps you never knew your father. Perhaps he simply wasn't around. If there was another man who filled that void, think about him. What kinds of things did your father do for you growing up? What did he teach you? How did he interact with you? What kind of a provider was he for your family? What kind of legacy did he leave you? Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 11. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And to one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if he, his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for fish, will he give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? This text is a part of the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus teaches on prayer, specifically persistence in prayer, When you have great needs. Now, our sermon this morning is not about prayer, but this text, the words of Jesus here in Matthew 7, reveal a truth about God that's crucial for our understanding if we move as we move into the text of Ephesians this morning. The truth about God revealed in Matthew 7 is very simply that God is the Father. I did not say that He was a Father, I did not say that He's like a Father, I said that He is the Father. That distinction is crucial. As often when we read about God as the Father, we think of him in the same way that we thought of our Heavenly Father. Some of us had great examples, others not so much. The point is that we don't draw our understanding of fatherhood from our earthly fathers, but rather from the Father who is in heaven. The first member of the Trinity to whom Jesus refers over and over again as his Father is the Father of fathers. He is the consummate Father. There's no greater understanding of what it means to be a father than he. Fatherhood is fatherhood precisely because it mirrors the relationship that the father has with the son and all who are called by his name. Jesus makes this comparison clear in our text, in the text, Matthew 7, verse 11. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, the illustrations that he mentioned above, a son asking for bread is not going to be given a stone. A son asking for a fish is not going to be given a serpent. Our earthly fathers knew how to give good gifts to their children as their children come to them asking and trusting them for provision. This is generally true. Of course, there are always exceptions. But this is generally true about fathers. Jesus makes the point that if you can do this, being evil, meaning not good like God, not morally pure, laden down by sin, corrupt due to the fall, if you can do this being evil, how much more... Will your heavenly father give good things to those who ask him? Those who ask him, who come to him in faith with open arms, trusting to receive provision from his hands. He says, how much more to illustrate the gap between the fatherliness of God who is in heaven and the fatherliness of men on earth below? How much more? How much greater? How much more can we expect good things from him? Of course, that question is rhetorical. It doesn't require an answer. We know the answer already, right? The question when we come to this truth is, do we believe it? 
Do we believe that the Father, our Father who is in heaven, is much more able to give good things to those who ask of him? Well, how do you describe your heavenly Father? If someone were to ask you what kind of person is he, what would you say? As we continue in our study in Ephesians this morning, we're reminded to brag on our Father. We're to brag on our heavenly Father, the Father, because he does give good things. Much more, he gives good things to those who ask of him. By that I mean those who have come to him in faith, those who have believed in him through Jesus Christ. Well, if you haven't turned back to the letter of Ephesians, that's where we are this morning. We'll focus in on verses 3 through 6 of chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 3 through 14. As I stated last week, this is one long run-on sentence. Paul would have been severely chastised by his grammar teachers, if he were alive today. <laughs> but in Greek, it's acceptable, so we're going we're gonna to go with that. We are going to break this down bit by bit. There's a lot to cover in these verses from verse 3 to 14. <clears throat> verse 3 is really the controlling sentence for the entire section. There, Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And the question he answers going forward from that is why? Why do we bless or praise God? Why do we honor him? And he lays that out in the rest of the section, in the rest of the verses. Verses 4 through 6, we bless or praise God for our selection by the Father. The Father, the first member of the Trinity, has selected some for salvation. And he's going to talk about that in those verses. In verses 7 through 10, we bless or praise God for the sacrifice of the Son. The Son has given his life for those whom the Father chose. He's redeemed us. In verses 11 through 14, and the breakdown here can be a little different depending on who you look at, but I I put these verses together. We bless or praise God for our sealing in the spirit. Our sealing in the spirit. I mentioned during our introduction last week that salvation is a work of the Trinity. The three members of the Trinity are at work in our salvation in various ways. There's a unity of purpose, a unity of design, a unity of intention, but each has a distinct role to play in our salvation. And Paul fleshes that out really in these verses from 3 through 14. And again, Paul's point is that we ought to give praise to God for each member of the Trinity and their respective roles in our salvation. Well, this morning, our focus is on verses 3 through 6, that first section, but we'll explore each of the remaining section over the next few weeks. I'll read that section for us this morning, and then we'll pray. We'll begin by looking at verse 3. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he bestowed on us in beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us, in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, 
according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Let's pray once again. Father, we thank you for your word, which is true, your word which sanctifies us. Open our eyes that we may behold beautiful things from your word this morning. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts collectively be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, again, verse 3 controls this section. There's a lot to unpack here, so we'll take it slowly. Again, verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, what does that mean, blessed be? The root of the word in the original is where we get our English word eulogy from. It is a good word about someone, a word of praise. That is what you do when you eulogize someone. You are sharing, hopefully, the good things about their life. You're speaking of them openly before others and telling about the good things that they have done to honor them. In this case, we're not eulogizing God at a funeral, but we're simply stating the good things that he has done. We're saying a good word about him. We're honoring him in that way. This verse, in other words, is a call to worship. That is the essence of worship, is it not? It's stating good things about God. It's stating that God is good and all the reasons why he is good. It is ascribing worth or value to him. One author said it this way, worship is declaring with our lips and lives that God is more important than anything else to us, that he is our deepest desire, that his inherent worth is beyond everything else we hold dear, end quote. We worship with all of who we are, as the author pointed out, with both our lips and our lives. Worship is not one or the other, it is both. Last week we talked about the glory of God and how our lives ought to magnify the glory of God. Our lives ought to make his glory bigger for others to see. That is worship. Romans 12, by the mercies of God, Paul says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, which is your spiritual worship. He says all of our lives ought to be designed around, intended for, Situated in such a way that it brings glory to God. It's a sacrifice for him. Worship can be understood in those two ways. Generally speaking, we show what or who we worship by our lives. We show it by how we spend our time, how we use our talents, how we use our resources. We show what we value the most, what we honor by those things. When we think about worship in a specific or more narrow sense, we think about what we do every Sunday morning. We worship when we gather together. All that we do from the time we come together in the morning until the last words are spoken as we are dismissed is worship together. 
It is the songs that we sing, the scripture that is read, the prayers that are uttered, our conversations with one another, the way we use our spiritual gifts to encourage one another, our giving and support of the ministry, as well as the sermon that is preached. These are all the ways that we collectively ascribe honor, worth, and value to God. We show these things by these things that he is honorable, valuable, glorious. Somehow in our Americanized Christianity, we've drifted away from this simple fact. Though people may speak this way, genuine worship, God-honoring worship, worship that you should desire to be a part of is not a matter of how you feel about the sermon if it struck the exact chord for you this week. Moreover, it's not a matter about how you feel about the singing, if the songs moved you emotionally because they're from your favorite singing group. Worship doesn't simply begin when you pick up a bulletin, read the words on the page loudly to match the tone and key of the accompaniment. When the saints gather, worship begins in our hearts and minds, when our hearts and minds are collectively engaged in thinking on the person of God And collectively agreeing together with all that we have that he is good. That he is worth it. I like this other quote here. The author says, if one has any other goal in gathered worship than engaging with God, coming into his presence to glorify and enjoy him, any other aim than to ascribe his worth, commune with him and receive his favor, then one has yet to understand worship. For in biblical worship, we focus on God himself and acknowledge his inherent and unique worthiness. That's Psalm 100. Psalm 100, a very familiar psalm to to most of us. Psalm that you all probably memorized. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. And his faithfulness to all generations. This is a call to worship As the people of God gather together, there are some things that we need to know about God. He is God. He has made us. He is our creator. And he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. And he does good things. These are the truths that we focus on as we gather together. This is worship. This is why the word of God governs all of our worship service. At every point, we ought to have our focus and attention on God. If we don't have our focus and attention on him, it isn't worship. Another quote for you. The great concern of traditional evangelical worship is for the heart, form, and content of congregational worship to be biblical. We want hearts that have been instructed by scripture, are motivated by grace, characterized by all of life worship, and focused on God, coming with the people of God to meet with God. An apt motto for this approach is, read the Bible, preach the Bible, pray the Bible, sing the Bible, see the Bible. End quote. 
Worship is about ascribing worth to God. It is something that we do both with our lips as well as with our lives. As Ephesians continues to unfold, we'll see all of that laid out before us. Back to our text again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one whom we are to praise, the one whom we worship, is here qualified as the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is whose name we are to lift high with our lips and our lives. That is whose goodness and gifts we are to consider and who our whole being ought to glorify. He is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That, again, is Trinitarian language. Jesus referred to God as his Father frequently in the Gospels. People understood the implications of this, and if it were not true, it would have been blasphemous. One of the most notorious instances of this is found in John 5, after Jesus healed a paralytic on the Sabbath. The Jews were actually upset that the man had been healed, picked up his bed on the Sabbath, and began to take it away. They confronted this man and said that he was doing so unlawfully, and they asked him, what are you doing? And he says, the one who healed me told me to take up my bed and to walk. And so they say, who in the world was this? And he identified him as Jesus. And the text says in John five sixteen, and this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Now that in and of itself is a head scratcher. Jesus just heals his man. He healed him. The man was lame. He couldn't walk. He couldn't do anything for himself. Jesus heals him. He makes him whole. And they're upset that he picked up his bed and began to take it away. John five seventeen. Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. So they were seeking to persecute him because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. That's what the first verse says. And then he says, my father is working until now and I am working. And then the text says, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Why? Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. And greater works than these he will he show him so that you may marvel. For as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he will. The father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son, that all may honor the son Just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Jesus calls God my Father. And the Jews became upset because, as the text says, not only was he breaking the Sabbath again, but he was calling God his own Father and making himself equal with God. They knew what he meant, they understood. He is the Father, I am the Son, there were distinct in roles, we are one. Jesus made clear that they were correct in their understanding at this point. He was indicating that he had a special relationship with the Father, and he was making himself equal with God. I do what the Father does. The Father loves me and shows me all that he does. The Father gives me the ability to give life to whomever I want. The Father gives me the ability to judge. The Father desires for me to be honored just as he is honored. We have that familiar term, chip off the old block, to describe a child who's walking in the footsteps of their parent. 
Same essence, same substance, same stuff, different person. Again, if these things were not true, they would be blasphemous. It is blasphemous for a man to make himself equal with God, for a man to say that he is the very son of God. And in this case, not just any son, but Jesus is positioning himself as the son to whom the father God essentially gives the family business. He gives him his own authority. He gives the son all the rights and privileges of the firstborn. He is the son whom the father loves. He is the favored son, the beloved son, the son in whom the father is well pleased. Jesus says that the father has given me all of his affairs to take care of. Now, while we're not focused on the son today, this text does help us to understand that Trinitarian language that we see in Ephesians chapter one and elsewhere in the New Testament by the apostles is rooted in Jesus's own words concerning the father. The father is the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is who we're referring to in Ephesians one. He is the one to whom we are to praise, to ascribe worth, value, honor. He is the one we are to glorify. He is the father The best kind of father, the father of fathers, who according to this passage, the passage in John, loves the son and has given all things to him. Don't miss that. We see also in John chapter 3 verse 35, we love John 3.16, right? Everybody knows John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Whoever believes in him will not perish. John 3.35 says, the father loves the son. And has given all things into his hand. Matthew, Mark, and Luke also have the words of the father recorded with reference to Jesus. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Now thinking back to Ephesians, we know that God is also our father in Christ. We'll flesh that out a bit more shortly. As he is our father in Christ, Paul will say in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 2 that we petition him for grace and peace. Here in chapter 1, verse 3, we direct our praise to him. In chapter 1, verse 17, and also 3, 14, we make our petitions to him, to the Father. In chapter 2, verse 18, we're given the Spirit to have access to him, to the Father. In chapter 4, verse 6, we submit to him, to the Father, as the one who is over all and through all and in all. And in chapter 5, verse 20, we give thanks to him, to the Father, for everything. Back to our text again. What does the text say is the reason for which we are to praise, honor, glorify God the Father? Again, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We, the us here, is a reference to the church. We are to bless, to honor, to glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ because in Christ he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. It is in Christ. That's how we know it's the church. I emphasize the love of the father for the son for a reason. The father has given all things to the son. Think about that. There's nothing not given to the son. All things have been given to him. So if anyone would ever get anything from the father, it would have to be through whom? Through the son. Because all things have been given to him. Therefore, the in Christ in this text, 
becomes extremely important. You cannot claim anything else in the rest of this verse, anything else in the rest of the section of verses 3 through 14. You cannot claim anything, any of the good things that the Father gives unless you are in whom? In the Son. Because he is the Son who has been given all things. He is the Son whom the Father loves. As we move forward, we'll see references back to this two-word phrase, in Christ. It'll say, in him, or it'll say, in Christ. The point is that all of what the Father does and is doing is centered on the person of Jesus Christ, his beloved Son. All things are centered on Christ. All good things are gained in Christ because of what the Father, will, what Paul will say in just a few verses. Look at verse 10 of chapter 1 of Ephesians. There Paul refers to a plan for the fullness of times to unite all things in him, referring to Jesus, things in heaven and things on earth. In other words, the plan of God, part of God's greater purposes, is to unite all things in Christ, in the Son. We'll discuss this further when we look at that verse and some again in chapter 3. But the idea of uniting all things in Christ is that all things will be placed under his authority. Things in heaven and things on earth. All of these things will be placed under the headship of Jesus Christ. Ephesians, the letter of Ephesians and Colossians are very similar in their content. One of the things that Paul does in Colossians that he doesn't do in Ephesians is that he really spells this out in a great deal of detail. In Colossians chapter 1, if you take a look there for a moment, He spells this out in detail. The Father's desire to unite all things in the Son. In this section, in chapter 1, Paul is praying for the church, as he often does. He'll pray for the church in Ephesians 1 also. He says in verse 12, after he talks about some of the things that he prays for them, He prays that they would be giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. For he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And he goes on talking about the Son a little bit more in verse 15. He says there, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, now this just before I go on for a second, I just want to make sure that we're clear here that Jesus is the firstborn doesn't mean that he was born first. Jesus wasn't created. That's not the issue. The idea of the firstborn is a title. The title of the firstborn was given to the one who in the family was usually the firstborn son, but not necessarily. Um, you know, if you think about in the Old Testament with the 12 tribes of Israel, Uh, the firstborn son, Reuben, was actually passed over because he dishonored his father. So he wasn't given a blessing. Uh, The one who was actually given the blessing of the firstborn, which typically the blessing of the firstborn comes with, again, you, you typically will inherit whatever the business is of the father. You will take over the house for the father. You may be given a double share of the inheritance in some other way. Maybe, you know, if, if the rest of the children get one portion, you'll get a double portion. 
You are particularly blessed. You are particularly favored. You are the one who walks in the footsteps of the father, so to speak. That's the firstborn. That's the title of the firstborn is given to that one. And so here we see Jesus being identified as the firstborn in title, again, of all creation. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And we can miss that if we breeze through this text too quickly. Not only was, is Jesus the means by which God created all things, he is the word of God, but all things were created for him. All things were created for him, meaning we were created for him. All of creation was created for Jesus to be given to him. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything, what? He might be preeminent. In everything, he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. A good title of that section of that passage in scripture would be Jesus, the preeminent one. Jesus, the one who has first place in everything, because that's the point. It's the father's desire. It's his will that Jesus have first place in everything. And all things have been given to Jesus. All things will be united in Jesus. All things will be made subject to Jesus. When we refer to Jesus Christ as Lord, that is what we mean. We mean he is Lord, ruler, governor. He is the head, the chief. He is the one to whom, as Matthew 28 says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given. He is the one to whom the Father has given all things. In case it's not clear by now, this is why it's not possible to come to God in any other way. Because God the Father has given all things to Jesus the Son. It is the plan of God to unite all things in his Son. To make all things subject to him as ruler. You cannot come to God in any other name. There's no other way to get to the Father. Jesus says that in John 14. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to me. No one comes to the Father but through me. Period. Not Muhammad. Not Confucius, not Buddha, not yourself, not any other person, Jesus alone. If you want to be a part of what the Father is doing in the world, then you have to be in Christ. If you're not in Christ, you will have no part in this. If you're not in Christ and you're outside of the blessing of the Father, if you're not in Christ and you're not united to nor subject to the Son, who has been made Lord over all by the Father, Remember John 5, 23, those who honor the son honor the father also. Failing to honor the son means failing to honor the father. Psalm 2 says it differently. Kiss the son lest he be angry with you and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. That is a warning. John 3.36, 
Another verse that we often ignore, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And that may lead to another question. How does one become, how does one come to be in Christ? Now the reality is that Paul is going to flesh that out over the next couple of chapters in Ephesians. For a sneak peek, I'd refer you to chapter 2, verse 5. To be in Christ is to be united with him. Chapter 2, verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. This text describes the process by which God raises us from spiritual death to life in Jesus. It is to be born again, to be born from above, to be given the new life of Jesus himself. It is to be forever in an undissolvable union with Jesus. We are being united with him. The union of Christ and his church is pictured as a wedding in scripture. He is the groom, the church is the bride. Biblically, the only way for a bride and groom to be separated is by means of death. The act of divorce was never envisioned as a viable option to separate married individuals. It came about in Jesus' words because of the hardness of men's heart. Now, the sermon is not about divorce, of course, but the point I want to stress now is that death is really the only natural way to be separated in the plan of God. Considering that union with Christ and his church is akin to marriage, the only way to separate the two would be by means of death. Jesus will never die again. The church has its life in him and will never die again. Therefore, the union of Christ and his church will never be broken. For those of us who are in Christ, that ought to be encouraging. As Paul says in Romans chapter 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? He says, what shall separate us from the love of Christ? He says, neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else created will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. For everyone else, the only way to be a part of this, what God is doing in Christ, is by means of the new birth. Jesus makes this clear to John, to Nicodemus in John 3. He says, you must be born again, or literally, you must be born from above. If you are not born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God, he says to Nicodemus. To be born again, to be born above, requires an act of God. Again, that uniting that God does with Christ. God raising you from spiritual death to life. He says it this way earlier in John, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God who were born, not of blood, not of human origin, nor of the will of the flesh, not by human effort, nor of the will of man, not by human desire, but of God. We have to be born of God, born again, united with Christ by God. Humanly speaking, we have to simply respond to the gospel. The people of God are sent out. Again, we just studied Jonah, and I made the point then that this is always the way it's worked. God has always used his people to communicate truth to the lost. The people of God are sent out. The word of God is proclaimed. Those who respond in faith to the word of God by turning to God from the idols of their heart, those are saved by God. The command inherent in the gospel is to believe in the Lord Jesus. 
That is the way the gift of eternal life is received, humanly speaking. Well, back to our text again. Those who are in Christ have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Again, all good things that the Father gives are given to the Son. Therefore, if you want to be a part of the good things that the Father does, you have to be in the Son. The phrasing of this verse confirms this truth. We, those who are in Christ, have been blessed. Again, the word for blessed here is the same word that we saw earlier in the verse. In this case, the blessing is coming from God. When we bless God, we speak well of him. When God blesses us, he also speaks well of us, but God speaking well of someone has more power behind it. For God to speak well of someone is for him to bestow his favor in their lives. His word has power. Another way to think about it is to think of the opposite of blessing, which is to curse, right? If we curse someone or someone curses us, we may say sticks and stones, right? If God curses someone, then their life is is coming to an end. Their livelihood dies, The womb dries up, the crops are eaten, their health deteriorates. For God to speak into someone's life, whether it be blessing or cursing, is for him to either bring favorable or unfavorable circumstances to bear in their lives. Here we're talking about being blessed in a positive sense. One author says to be blessed by God means to receive benefits from God in a sense of provisions, possessions, or prosperity. In this case, God speaks, and there are good things that he speaks to us, good things that he gives to us. The good things given in verse 3 are qualified as every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. The way in which God has blessed believers in Jesus is by giving them, speaking into their lives, such that they now possess these spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. Now, what does the text say? What kind of blessings are these? These are spiritual, meaning they're not physical or material. These are of the spirit of God, not of man or the earth. Which spiritual blessings have been given to the church? Each one of them. Nothing has been left out. In other words, you are not missing a blessing from God. Where do these spiritual blessings reside? Meaning, where do they come from? What is their nature? They're spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. They are from heaven. They are of heaven. The quality of these spiritual blessings is that they are heavenly blessings. And that should make sense, right? I read to you Ephesians chapter 2, verse 5 earlier. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he goes on to the next verse. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Of course, we'll get to this when we visit chapter 2. But the reality is that God has not only united us with Christ... But he's also given us a position with Christ in the heavenly places, in the heavenly realm. We are now seated with Christ, so to speak, in the heavenly places. Jesus is seated there presently, physically, in the heavenly places with his Father, and we are seated there spiritually with him. It is as if when God the Father and looks over to see his son Jesus sitting beside him, he not only sees Jesus, but he sees each and every one of us. Because we've been raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places. That means what? That means that the benefits that the son has, the benefits that the son enjoys being seated in the heavenly places, are now given also to who? They're now given also to us. 
I like this quote here. At the root of Paul's celebration here in this text is the idea that both he and the Ephesians, by virtue of their being in Christ, have been elevated to the heavenly realms. That is, they occupy the place where Christ is now enthroned, seated at the Father's right hand. This is also where all of us who are united to him through faith are seated. The heavenly realms are the immaterial reign, the unseen universe which lies behind the world of sense, the place where Christ's throne, where we are enthroned with him. Temporally, we live here on earth, but spiritually, we live in the heavenly realms where Christ lives. Paul calls us to immerse ourselves in this truth and to celebrate. Again, think about that for a moment, believer. The church, influenced by the world, sees all things material as blessings. When we talk about counting our blessings, we're usually referring to the good things that we possess in a physical or material sense. When we say that we're looking for a blessing from God, what we're usually referring to is some material or physical thing. This verse should utterly blow us away every time we think about it, if we really thought about it. We're so busy looking for that material or physical blessing from God. That's understandable because that's the reality that we, we generally know best. What is here and now, what is front and center, what we can experience with our senses. But again, the truth is that there is a greater reality in the universe. There's a heavenly reality in the universe, one that we are now a part of. God, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, now gives to those who believe in his Son, to those who are in his Son, not some benefits, not some good things from heaven, but every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Every one of them. You have them now, Christian. Do you ever think about that? When you're tempted to grumble about something you don't have, When you're tempted to lust about something that someone else has that you don't, when you're tempted to ask for something extra, some blessing from the hand of God, when he doesn't provide it and you're tempted to become angry, do you consider that God has already given you every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ? Yes, there are some times when we're weak and sick and we need health and healing, but we have been given by our Father every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ already. What more do you need? Yes, there are times when the bills are due, the funds are low, and you need more. Though we've already been given by our Father every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. What more do you really need? Yes, there are times when it feels as though there's no one around to comfort, encourage, or guide us. And we feel we need more. Yes, there are times when we don't feel accepted by anyone. No, we've already been accepted by our Father who is in heaven. And he's already given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. What more do you need? Again, the question is, when we come to these kinds of truths, do you believe that? Do you believe that you've been given all things in Christ? If you believe that, are you presently living a contented life or a contentious life? Being content means it doesn't mean that we don't desire things, and it doesn't mean we won't sometimes go without. It does mean that we have, whether we have a lot or a little, as Paul says in Philippians 4, that we can be content. And we ought to seek to be content. 
that we ought to seek to live life without grumbling or complaining, Philippians 2. Because again, we know that we've been given everything in Christ already. The question is, where is your focus? That's Colossians 3. He tells us there to set our minds on the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Again, all things are yours in Christ. Do you live like it? To the point of this text, do you praise the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ as if all of what he has has been given to us in Christ? When you come before him in worship, do you consider all that he has done for you already in Christ? Do you engage your heart and mind in worship when you gather together with the people of God? Are you coming here just to check off a box to say you've been to church? When you start reading and singing the songs, do you actually praise God when it says we praise God? We glorify him. Give glory to God. To God be the glory. Do you mean that? Do you think about why he deserves glory? Because he has given to you every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Do you engage your heart and mind in those truths when we gather together? Do you encourage your brothers and sisters in Christ with this truth? As you interact with each other daily, as you interact with each other week by week, you encourage one another to think about these truths and not to crave other worldly things. All things are yours in Christ. Do you tell others about how good your heavenly father is to you? Do you brag about him? Do you share with them how good he is? All the good things that he's done for you in Christ and invite them to partake in his goodness. Again, we naturally praise those things we value the most. If you say that you value him and you truly appreciate him, who have you told about him this week? Who have you said, I have a good father. He does great things for me. He has given me everything. I mean, what other father can you say has done that for you? And who else in the world do you think needs to hear that message? Well, in the remaining 11 verses of this section, again, Paul spells out what those spiritual blessings in the heavenly places are for those who are in Christ. He gives us the opportunity to meditate on those spiritual blessings In verses 4 through 6, the emphasis remains on the person of the Father. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Jesus, his Son. And his first spiritual blessing bestowed on us by the will of the Father is his selection of us in Christ, his choice of us. We are chosen. And we're chosen, really, with three results. He has chosen us that we would be holy He's chosen us that we'd be a part of his family, and he's chosen us that we would praise his glory. We'll pick up there next week. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the reminder that you are not just God in some vague, detached, dispassionate sense of the word, but that you are our Father in heaven. That you are our Father in heaven because of your Son, Jesus Christ. Because you have united us with your Son, Jesus Christ. You give us life in your Son, Jesus. 
And so now, as Paul will say in Ephesians, we've been adopted into your family. Because that is true, we know that you have given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Jesus, your son. We praise you for that truth. We thank you for that truth. I pray that you would help us to understand the significance of the fact that you have given us everything in Christ. I pray that you would help us this week as we go through our week, our day, that there wouldn't be a day, an hour, a moment of our lives that we don't reflect upon this truth. That no matter what happens in this life, no matter what we lose today, this week, no matter what struggles or difficulties we have, that we would remember that you have given us all things in Christ. That no one can take those away from us. That you would help us to be thankful, always giving thanks to you, our Father in heaven. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.